Welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service, where we report the world, however difficult the issue, however hard to reach. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. In 1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising black student-athletes upside down. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service with me, Alice Bandukravi. You're listening to Heart and Soul, which explores personal approaches to spirituality from around the world. This is the third programme in a special series examining faith in the 21st century, and this programme is exploring Buddhism. There are more than 500 million Buddhists in the world. The Dalai Lama is perhaps the most famous living Buddhist. But many traditional Buddhist countries, like Japan, are seeing a huge decline in the faith as young people regard it as irrelevant and old-fashioned. Meanwhile, in the West, Buddhism is growing. But with elements of the philosophy absorbed into societies through the wellness industry, is it being diluted? I was born in a Buddhist country, Thailand, to a Thai Buddhist father, and I've brought together three global Buddhists to hear their views. So let's meet them. Venerable Chanda, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you are. I'm uh, Britain's only fully ordained nun in the Theravada tradition, and I'm at the moment in Oxford, England, where I'm establishing the first monastery where women can train towards full ordination. So hopefully I can reproduce myself so there'll be many more fully ordained women available to teach the Dhamma here. Heng Xuentiao, tell us about yourself, where you are, and your organisation, Handful of Leaves. So I'm based out of Singapore, born in Singapore, I'm running this platform for Buddhists. We aim to provide practical Buddhist wisdom, all different media so that people can essentially live a peaceful and happier life. And Lama Rod Owens, welcome. Tell us where you are, what you do, and what being a Lama means. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, the southern United States. I'm a Lama, which means teacher in the Tibetan tradition. And so much of my teaching and practice is centered around helping people to live in a much more just way, being really concerned with systems of violence and discrimination, and really supporting people to bring their practice into trying to live an equitable life. Heng Xuan, you come from a Buddhist family. Have you always felt a connection with it? So Singapore tends to follow a bit of Mahayana Buddhism, and also a bit of Chinese religion as well. As a child, it's really quite a transactional relationship that we have with Buddhism. We will go to temples, we will ask for good exam results, and we will return the next year. So growing up, the connection with Buddhism was not really strong. It only started to mature when I was in my teenage years, where I was trying to seek deeper meaning out of religion. And I went further into Buddhism through Venerable Chanda's teacher, Ajahn Brahm. Ah, so you have that in common. Lama Rod, you were brought up a Christian. What made you choose Buddhism instead? Well, I grew up in the Black church. And as I grew older, I never felt the teachings of Christianity relevant for me. I really longed for a path of practice that helped me to really address my mental health, 
in my early 20s, I began exploring meditation. It helped me to really start working through a lot of the suffering that I'd been experiencing for many years. And soon I began to really understand that Buddhism was really the path that I'd been looking for my whole life. Thank you, Lama Rod. And Venerable Chanda, you are a monastic Buddhist. Tell us about that life. You've rejected material wealth. You've devoted your life to Buddhism. What first attracted you to this life? Similarly for me, I came across a sort of very existential question as to the meaning of life in my teens. I just felt this immense sadness and distress around the suffering that I could see in the world. And I just felt that I wanted to understand why I'm here and what a compassionate response to that would look like. So my journey actually took me as somewhat of a rebellious teenager all the way to India. And there I encountered Vipassana retreats. When I first sat that course, I felt like I'd found my path. Tell us about what is monastic life actually like from day to day? For me, it was just a gradual process of simplification and contentment coming from inside that led me to want to dedicate my life to the practice. And initially I ordained in Myanmar where I had the opportunity to meditate pretty much day and night. But my life now has changed a lot. A lot of admin involved, a lot of activism really. Well, whilst monastic Buddhists like Venerable Chanda are able, I guess, to a certain extent to protect themselves from some of the pitfalls of modern life, many young lay Buddhists are constantly bombarded with the demands of modern society. Let's hear from someone who's recently started following Buddhism in Singapore about the challenges she's facing. My name is Kaylee Xiao. In Buddhism, we are taught not to get attached to essential delights, like chasing a job, chasing status. Buddhism teaches there are more important things to focus on. So that is the bigger challenge where the society is telling you to gun for one thing and you going against the stream. There's so many things that are being talked about, gossip, what's happening in the news, what new TV programs there are. To a certain extent, I no longer have things to contribute to conversations. And then my friends... They're like, is everything okay? Are you tired? Is anything bothering you? So yes, I think it's quite a change in gears for my regular friends. I think we all feel for Kaylee there and applaud her commitment. Lama Rod, can it feel as if you're missing out on a social life when you're a young Buddhist, do you think? You know, I think it depends. I definitely felt I needed to really commit a lot of energy and time and focus in my early practice I spent five years living in the monastery, which was certainly cutting into my social life as a 20-something-year-old. But that was really imperative for me because now at this point in my life, I feel as if I'm able to really have a really strong social life, but also have a really strong practice at the same time, which has been really crucial for me because my work is to be in the world and to be visible in places where people don't believe Buddhists hang out. Heng Shuen, we're seeing a wave of mental health issues, particularly among young people around the world. How do you think Buddhism can help with that? In Singapore, suicide is the leading cause of death for young people from 15 to 30 years old. Buddhism does offer a portion of the solution because the solution has to come from society itself. But it's the way that we live our lives and not just the way that we 
live on the meditation cushion. For Buddhists, we focus on changing the perspective that we look at life, look at things through letting go. So I think there's a huge role that Buddhism can play in this mental health crisis. And Venerable Chanda, speaking of the way that we live our lives as a monastic, as a Buddhist nun, you've essentially rejected being part of modern society in some ways. Is there a selfishness, do you think, to choosing the Buddhist path? I think that the life of a renunciate is a life of selfless service. And I would never use the word reject, actually. It was a gradual wearing away of certain desires, such as yeah, sexual relationships, perhaps. What I'm trying to do now with establishing a monastery is actually build community that's welcoming and inclusive and a very safe and loving space for people. A monastery gives you the opportunity to practice the whole path. One of the biggest causes of loneliness and suicide, depression, is this sense of isolation. And a monastery is a kind of haven. And tell us then, Venerable Chanda, what you think about the fact that with Buddhism spreading around the world and particularly to yeah. the West, some see the Dharma or teaching as being diluted. Do you worry that young people particularly might be sold a version of Buddhism that undermines the true meaning that you speak of? I'm not sure, actually. I'm in two minds about this, because I think on the one hand, mindfulness is a way in for many people, and it does address their immediate concerns. So it's taking a part of the Buddhist path and using that in a way that helps people with their anxiety, their depression, or whatever they're going through, just to live a more balanced and calmer life. There's many different levels of Buddhism being taught, but I think the role of the monastic Sangha is to understand what the Buddha taught and to be able to contextualize the other things around that so that we don't actually lose the original source. And that brings us to the next aspect of our conversation. Young Westerners traveling to countries like Thailand and Sri Lanka have also clashed with traditional Buddhists over, for example, fashions like tattoos of the Buddha. The Knowing Buddha Foundation, which is based in Thailand, aims to prevent the image of Buddha being disrespected in their country and others. My name is Acharavadi Wongsakon, Vipassana Meditation Master, the president of Knowing Buddha Foundation. We have 20,000 members in 20 countries. I start a team, Buddha Wash, to stop this improper act toward the Buddha's image. The Buddha's symbol is for respect, for Buddhists to practice, not for decoration. You should not tattoo the Buddha's image in the body because our body is dirty. What I do is give them the right knowledge, how to treat the Buddha's image properly. And then if anyone's still doing it, we send out the letter, contact to them that what they do is wrong. But we correct things with compassion, not with anger. Heng Xuan, let's hear from you. The Knowing Buddha Foundation says it's seen examples of Buddha on a toilet seat. How do you deal with that kind of thing? I think the cause is the real noble cause to, you know, ensure that people do not misappropriate the Buddha's image. However, on a deeper level, one poignant teaching that it always brings to mind when people don't listen or like when we tell people, okay, this is not really appropriate and they continue to do it. I have sometimes asked myself, what would the Buddha do? And most of the time, I think I will approach this with letting go. 
what we are more concerned with is the contents of the container and not the container itself. So like Buddhist images, statues and all of that, these are containers. But more importantly is to practice the content of it. That I think is most important. What would Buddha do sounds like the ideal t-shirt <laughs> or perhaps not. Lama Rod, do you wear clothes with the image of Buddha on them? I absolutely do. <laughs> For me, I wear the image of the Buddha on clothing because I deeply respect what the Buddha has taught us. But a really interesting thing too, Alice, is that one of my favorite shows is absolutely fabulous. <laughs> you know, absolutely favorite show. But if you watch the show, you know there are a lot of images of the Buddha. And sometimes I have noticed myself going, oh my God, they shouldn't be doing that with the statue of the Buddha. They shouldn't be using that bell and dorje, which are ritual instruments, you know, as a prop. But then I've also had to kind of relax and understand that people, when kind of approaching other religions, other spiritual practices, don't really understand the significance. And I practice Buddhism to be more connected and to have a deeper commitment to helping others, right? Not just policing everyone around images. I really help people to focus on the practice. Let's take the practice seriously. You say you don't really want to indulge in policing, but yeah. obviously the teaching of Buddhism is open to abuse and misinformation in totally. the same way that any other faith or practice is. Many other religions have had to deal with the discovery of sexual abuse within yes. their organizations. Is this a big issue for Buddhism in the U.S.? Oh, absolutely. And so much of my work is bringing to light the ethical misconduct of teachers. And for me, I'm really interested in helping us to understand what an ethical framework looks like in our practice. Like, what should we be divesting from and what should we be investing in, in terms of creating really safe communities and really protecting student-teacher relationships? Venerable Chanda, on this issue of safer spaces, the hierarchical nature of monasteries must mean that young monastics can be in a vulnerable position. Do you think monasteries need to take more responsibility for that? I mean, the hierarchy that affects me in, in the monastic systems is the hierarchy of the men, the patriarchy, basically. <laughs> that obviously gives women very few opportunities because monks hold all the resources. They hold the power, you know, they own the places and they can make rules that women will have to follow if they want to stay in those monasteries. So that is obviously flawed. I think the Vinaya, the way that the Buddha laid down the training rules for monastics, was actually very democratic. And I think this is a really beautiful model that um, perhaps women are better at. And I do notice that in some of the bhikkhuni monasteries, the monasteries for fully ordained nuns in other countries, because there are a few around the globe, we tend to do things a little bit more democratically. That's very interesting. That's, that's a protection, actually, for the Sangha going forward. Heng Shuen, Buddhism has generally not been associated with extremism, but in recent years, Myanmar has seen the rise of an ultra-nationalist fringe with one monk jailed for mm. anti-Muslim hate speech. Does Buddhism as an institution need to do more to address this, do you think? I think it's unfortunate that that has happened in Myanmar. There is an intermix between religion, institution and racial lines as well. Buddhism is pretty much decentralized in a sense. There is no central body and therefore institutions 
maybe just at a national level can do things to sanction certain behavior. But at an overall Buddhist supranational level, there is no institutions there to prevent such things. So I would say we followed a different way of doing that. We focus on educating. We focus on pushing out the good messages rather than fighting directly against these individuals that misappropriate the Buddha's teachings. Because in none of the suttas did Buddha ever encourage the taking of life of any living creature. So that has to be clear and that message has to be spread out far and wide. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. In a world where change is constant, it pays to look beyond your borders. The Financial Times offers a global perspective to give you a deeper understanding of international markets and emerging trends. Broaden your horizons and widen your influence. Fearlessly Pink, The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless. Neu und majestätisch gut. Probier jetzt den Hamburger Real Barbecue Bacon und den Hamburger Real Smoky. Nur für kurze Zeit bei McDonalds. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants, nicht zu unseren Frühstückszeiten. Just a reminder, you're listening to Heart and Soul on the BBC World Service, where as part of a special series on religion in the 21st century, I'm talking to global Buddhists about the future of their faith. Communities are growing in countries like the USA, but in some Asian countries, some young people see Buddhism as irrelevant and old-fashioned. I'm Cheryl Chia from Singapore. I have been a Buddhist for the past 10 years. But interestingly, I only had the courage to admit myself as a Buddhist to my friends only five years ago. The Association of Buddhists is constantly tied to old people, boring people conservative people. When I found a community of Buddhist practitioners who are young working adults, I found the courage to come out and be proud of my spiritual search. Heng Shuen, how does Handful of Leaves, your organization, help young people see Buddhism as different from their parents' generation? We started off because of COVID. We started to publish articles, short articles, such as premarital sex, being LGBTQIA plus member of the Buddhist community. How do we talk to our parents? How do we look at applying mindfulness at the workplace to move towards the needs of younger people? And the diversity, I guess, too. There are three main branches of Buddhism. And in countries where Buddhism is a minority religion, there can be problems bringing the different branches together. Let's hear from Indonesia. My name is Billy Lukito Yuswanto. I'm from the Young Buddhist Association of Indonesia. 
Buddhism in Indonesia is very minority, 1%. We have a good relationship between Buddhism and the other religions. We respect each other. But in inter-Buddhism relationship, there is uh, some gap. This is a problem for us. We need to become bigger by United Become One. Lama Rod, Buddhism is not a religion that tries to convert people. Does it matter if Buddhists are not working together, say, in Indonesia? Yeah, I think it's important that there be some kind of collaboration and harmony between traditions of Buddhism and Buddhists within a particular country. I really deeply appreciate the way that Buddhism doesn't promote proselytizing, But I think it's really important that we understand, particularly in diverse Buddhist communities where people are practicing different traditions, that we kind of learn and understand the qualities and the characteristics of our traditions. And Lama Rod, you also do interfaith work, don't you? But with Buddhism flourishing in the US, Mm -hmm. would you say there are challenges around diversity? Heng Shuen touched on it a moment ago uh, in Singapore. How about in Mm -hmm. the States? Can Buddhism be seen as a path for perhaps older, white, straight, wealthy people? Well, I think that's been the face of Buddhism in America. But we always overlook the fact that Buddhism was established by immigrant Asian communities that are still functioning and still practicing. And so for me, I want us to have a fuller picture of who Buddhists are in America. And more specifically for me as a Black American, the Black Buddhist communities are kind of emerging, offering a really unique perspective on Buddhism to address histories of racism and genocide and colonialism. And I think that's really inviting a lot of folks into into the practice because it's really addressing the issues that we're struggling with. Venerable Chanda, tell us about the challenges to the monastic tradition of Buddhism. Many of the world's millions of Buddhists are secular. So in the 21st century, how important is it to maintain the monastic tradition? One of the beautiful things about the monastic tradition as an arms mendicant, because I don't handle or earn money, is that we're not fed unless people see value in what we do. So the very fact that, you know, monastics can exist shows that people understand the need for us. There's a wish to have teachings from people who immerse themselves in the Buddha's teachings and practice. You know, if you're not up to scratch, if you're actually breaking your precepts or spreading hate, then the idea, at least, is that we wouldn't be supported well. And I think it's important for the lay community to really scrutinise the monastics and make sure that they are worthy of the offerings. From my own perspective as a bhikkhuni, because we're not really accepted by traditional Buddhists, I've basically developed a brand new community, which is very multicultural, very diverse. We have transgender people. We have people from Sri Lanka who are traditional Buddhists. We have white folks who've never really practiced Buddhism before. But the message they find is very relevant and accessible for them, because I guess it's like a living Buddhism that they see when they come to a monastery. In a way, being marginalised and not having instant access to those big support networks that have been developed by monks means that we really have to think about how we present the Dhamma as bhikkhunis and um, pull our game up quite a few notches. So I'm quite hopeful.
Venerable Chanda, let's talk about women in, in Buddhism. Yeah. Um, why do women, do you think, need to reach full ordination? How much of a need is there for a new monastery to allow women to train? It's like asking the question, how much of a need is there for a person who teaches in class to be fully qualified? Or how much of a need is there for women to be doctors? Why can't they just stay as junior doctors? Women need a choice. They need to have opportunities because for me, monastic life wasn't something I kind of logically decided that I want to do. It was a calling from the heart. And the impact then of women being in leadership in Buddhism is important from an equity point of view. But what other impacts do you think that would have? Giving other women the opportunity to feel empowered as leaders, because without that, we miss out on the wisdom of women. And that's tragic. And, of course, replicated in all sectors and all fields across (laughs) society. For many faiths, online connectivity has revolutionised communities, especially during the pandemic, as we know. Some Buddhist monks in Cambodia have taken to TikTok and have hundreds of thousands of followers. Venerable Chanda, our Mm. obsession with social media Mm -hmm. means our attention span is getting shorter and shorter. Surely that's the complete opposite to Buddhist thinking. I don't know if it's a good thing or not to be, you know, on TikTok. But I think there's always different levels that religious teachers work at. And one is just spreading the word widely. Lama Rod, what do you think? For me, social media has been really important for my teaching and my dharma. And to be quite honest, every young person that I know really is on TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat. And I think that's how we can work with young folks is to, to have a presence on these platforms. Well, let's hear the view from a Cambodian Buddhist. Venerable San Pisith is currently studying towards a PhD in Estonia. We need to understand that the social media built on the business model. They need to keep people engaged as much as they possibly can. For a Buddhist man, if they focus so much on a larger audience with that clickbait, I think this is not appropriate because the teachings of the Buddha is so profound and so deep. Teachers and students, they need to be careful. Otherwise, they could misinterpret the teachings of the Buddha. Heng Shuen, the dangers and pitfalls of social media, what's your view? I think that social media is a double-edged sword. It can either harm you or it can really help magnify your message. Especially for us as content creators in the Buddhist space, if we keep going shorter and shorter in the videos or if we just do things for clickbait, then we may fall into unskillful states of mind, of greed or hatred. So I think these are the pitfalls. But if we use it wisely, we can bring people into the practice and bring people forward into peace and calmness. And on that note, finally, I would like to ask you all what it means to be a Buddhist in the 21st century. Venerable Chanda. I suppose for me, being a Buddhist is um, a commitment to a life of harmlessness as best I can, and also to serve. Lama Rod. My goal and the point of my practice is to reduce suffering, to reduce harm and violence for myself, and thus reducing harm and violence against others. But at the same time, I think it's important to understand that it's it's okay to have fun. Heng Xuan, how about you? This is probably the best time in the human history to be Buddhist, other than being alive during 
the Buddha's enlightenment. There's so much resources, so much material and online communities that we can access. At the same time, it's also the best opportunity to give back to the Buddhist community and to those outside the Buddhist community to show them that peace is possible. Yeah, so for me, being a Buddhist in 21st century, it's, it's really a blessing and we must not let that blessing go to waste. Well, there we must leave it. Thank you for joining me for this discussion about Buddhism in the 21st century. And thanks to my guests, Venerable Chanda, Lama Rod Owens and Heng Shuen Tiao. The program was presented by me, Alice Bandukravi, and produced by Julia Paul. In a world that doesn't pause, catching up isn't enough. The Financial Times keeps you one step ahead in your life and career. With breaking news, detailed analysis, and a deep understanding of the global economy. Don't just keep pace, set the pace. Fearlessly Pink. The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless.